Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Coming up, I spoke with Bob Crafasi, water resource expert and author, on his new book, Western Water A to Z, a comprehensive guide to terms and concepts around water issues in the West. But first, a look at some of the recent news in science. If you're like me, you may wonder why some of our biology seems somewhat, well, poorly designed. Take the appendix, for example. Another glaring illustration that is not so well known is the cholesterol-carrying molecule called ApoE4. It's one of a family of three proteins that is often, though not deservedly, maligned because of its role in carrying cholesterol about the body. That function aside, ApoE4 is well known as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Despite this downside, the gene for this protein remains at a relatively high level in many human populations. A recent study analyzed data collected over 20 years in a long-running health study led by U.S. and French researchers of the Tsumani people. This population of 17,000 hunts, forages, and practices horticulture in the Brazilian Amazon. In this indigenous population living what may be an ancestral human lifestyle, the new analysis showed that women with the E4 gene had increased fertility, bearing nine and a half children on average compared to nine children in women without the gene. The researchers hypothesized that the E4 protein facilitated the immune system, a vital function in all humans, particularly in those living without access to modern medicine. This gene story is an example of how evolution favors increased reproduction at the expense of costs to older individuals. This research was published last week in the journal Science Advances. We hear, thanks to tiny, hair-like structures on specialized cells within our inner ears, these hair-like sensory structures form before birth, thanks to instructions from some genes that guide the development. Like rows of sinuous dancers, these sensory cells can bend and flex in response to sound vibrations. This bending and flexing creates signals that let our brains share with us the magic of music, the power of words, the sounds of everything from the whisper of a cricket to the roar of a jet engine. All this formation happens before we are born. After the sensory cells have been created, our bodies silence the genes that made them possible. Illness and loud sounds can damage these delicate, hair-like structures on our sensory cells. Unfortunately, once they're damaged, it's not been possible to restore them. Until now. Maybe. Stem cell researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, have just published findings that indicate how our bodies create those hair-like auditory cells in the first place. The scientists have also found a way that supporting cells near the damaged cells can be transformed into auditory sensory cells that carry those crucial hair-like growths. To reach these conclusions, stem cell scientists at UCSF put some auditory supporting cells, meaning without hair-like structures, in petri dishes. Then the scientists added enzymes that help switch back on the silenced genes that had initially provided the instructions to grow the hair-like structure of an auditory sensory cell. 
After the scientists did this, those cells in the petri dishes grew the hair-like auditory structures. Lots of steps ahead to figure out whether scientists can safely regrow in humans the hair-like structures needed to help people who are deaf hear once again. But the UCSF research is being called a promising beginning. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. Bob Kofasi works in water management and planning and is an environmental scientist with more than 25 years of experience. We spoke on this show six years ago about his comprehensive history of water in the West, a land made of water. His new book, Western Water A to Z, is equally ambitious, showcasing virtually every term imaginable that applies to water in our arid environment. I think you'll be surprised and delighted by some of the terms we discuss. Welcome to the show, Bob. I'm speaking with Bob Crafasi today, and this is his second time on the show. I can't believe it's been six years since we talked about his first book, A Land Made of Water, which is a fascinating history of front range water. But he has a new book out called Western Water, A to Z. And just like the title suggests, it is a compendium or a guidebook to a huge variety of terms associated with Western water. So without further ado, Bob, we can get started. Why did you write this book? Well, well, thanks, Beth, first for having me, and I really appreciate being here. One of the things that uh, brought me to write this book is my long interactions with people uh, across the board who are involved with various water issues and things like that. And what I found was, especially folks that aren't doing it as a day-to-day professional, that there are a lot of things in Western water that uh, are, are kind of mysterious to folks. And what I wanted to do was kind of demystify it. I, I don't think that Western water is one of these things that is this real opaque and muddy uh, subject that I think uh, some technocrats would have us believe, but it's really a very vital and interesting thing that we can dive into and learn a lot about our history and geography. So this was just something that I thought would be really good to bring about a little wider um, uh, exploration on various subjects that are really salient to, to water, but that a lot of people just are not super aware of. So yeah, based on what you just said, I can launch into some of my high points from the book. I thought you know, I could start with an ABC. And since you're talking about history and people, uh, let me start with the C, the coffin story. Um, in your book, it's the coffin versus left-hand ditch company. And that's a really critical piece of Colorado history. And it, like you're saying, with respect to water, which I'm sure everyone listening has been hearing is a really big deal right now. Maybe tell us a little bit about that story. Sure. It- it really is one of those things that happen in Boulder Left Hand Valley that set the course for water development across much of the Western United States. When um, 
the first Euro-American settlers or colonists were coming into the Front Range, they initially had a uh, water management style that came from the eastern United States called riparian rights. And that allowed people who lived along rivers or lakes to take water. And when the Euro-Americans uh, came to places like Colorado, they very quickly realized that if um, it was restricted to only owners of water uh, excuse me, only owners of land along waterways that could receive this, it could really stymie development for the future. And so there were various moves during the territorial days to allow people to build ditches across other people's property and things like that. And then when Colorado became a state in 1876, they had a very progressive populist um, constitution that embodied uh, things that we would almost consider socialistic today, uh, allowing folks to build uh, or declare rights away across other people's property, declaring water as property of the people, and, and things like that that got put into the Constitution. But what had not happened uh, as of that time are any significant courts cases that kind of delineate the need of what was put in the Constitution. So in 1878, which was a very dry year, there was uh, a person, uh, Reuben Coffin, who a uh, colorful figure, he was in the Civil War and in some of the worst battles, he was a, a fellow that was on the Union side. And in the aftermath of the Civil War, he made it out to Colorado and into the Longmont area. His uh, older brother, Morse Coffin, was one of the earliest uh, people into Boulder Valley in 1859. And uh, when Reuben got here, he started a uh, uh, little farm and ranch. And there's uh, out east of Longmont, there's a, some open space that's the Coffin Ranch. And in 1878, it was a very dry year. And they realized that down there, they weren't getting their water. And they thought, well, gosh, there are these folks over on Left Hand Creek that are getting water. And that's because they built this little ditch a number of years earlier, back in about 1864 uh, to 66. They built a ditch that took water from the North St. Drain and uh, worked its way over to Gin Creek that drops water into Left Hand Creek and down to Left Hand Valley. And they were getting that water. And so the coffins were not getting water. Uh, and the folks on Left Hand Ditch had done all of that according to you know, territorial laws and, and things like that. But Coffin uh, took it a, and amongst himself and, and several of his neighbors got angry that Left Hand Ditch was getting water. So they uh, rode their horses on up above Ward where the ditch was and tore out the diversion structure. Well, that sure got the, the Left Hand Ditch folks upset and they hired a fellow, Richard Whiteley, who was a uh, former Confederate, uh, I forget uh, what his rank was, but he was a Confederate sharpshooter in the East. And he had come out to Colorado to escape all of that after the war, got his law license and was practicing water law. So they hired Whiteley uh, to um, represent them in a court case. And there was a trial heard in Boulder Valley and uh, Coffin was found guilty for tearing out the diversion dam along with his buddies. 
And so the coffins, they had a, uh, a fellow um, bring the appeal and that went to the Colorado Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court was re recognizing that a lot of this stuff around the, the water law was really incipient at the time. And uh, they um, basically made a ruling that said that the first in time, first in right principle, it became known as the Colorado um, uh, system of prior appropriation, that that's what would rule in Colorado. And it allowed people to uh, divert water from one stream to another. It allowed them to take water across other people's land. It allowed them to use water not next to the creek. So all of these various principles that we look to uh, in uh, Western water today largely stems from this court case that originated right here in, along the front range in Boulder and uh, left-hand balance. And I think these are all terms that people have been hearing in the news lately, prior appropriations. And another one, beneficial use of using water for um, socially accepted reasons, drinking, irrigation, farming, and so on, recreation, and so on. But as you um, return to many times in your book, in fact, before the settlers, many of whom, the white settlers, many of whom came after the Civil War, there were thousands of years of indigenous people living in the West and hundreds of people, sorry, hundreds of years of Hispanic peoples living here who had developed their own systems of moving water around and using it and also using it in a sort of socialist way. And so a couple of those other terms, the, the A in my list is for acequia. And so you, mm -hmm. I, I was familiar with that from having lived in New Mexico, but I think a lot of people have heard it and not know some of the history. And then you also talk about a very interesting kind of structure, the Hohokam Canal. So mm -hmm. maybe you could touch upon those and then just segue into how these um, past water uses could inform us today. Yeah, well, you, you actually just got to another, one of my big motivations for writing the book. If you look at a lot of the histories that have been written about Western water, uh, you know, maybe one of the more famous books is uh, Mark Reister's Cadillac Desert or Rivers of Empire, another one. There's these great books that are out there. And they invariably start uh, with uh, the post-gold rush years. It's almost like the indigenous people and Hispanic people hadn't been out there. And, and I felt like that was a crime of omission, in a sense, for uh, Western water when we have an indigenous use uh upwards of 9,000 years of history, uh, starting with wells in the Mexico Valley, Valley of Mexico. And then uh, several thousand years ago, uh, they were building uh, ditches in what is now the Phoenix Basin, the Hohokams. And they had uh, dozens of miles of uh, irrigation ditches that they were using to, to irrigate uh, their communities. These were hand dug affairs that were dozens of miles long and moved large amounts of water and allowed a very sophisticated civilization to take place. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, and so they were using, using that water in, in really wonderful ways. Down at Mesa Verde, they found uh, reservoirs over in the Ute uh, Mountain Park. They found you know, other kinds of reservoirs and water management structures. 
So these folks were really using water in a sophisticated way. Down in Mexico, what is now Mexico, at a site called Pacume, uh, near Casas Grandes, they found a well that was dug down into the ground uh, and it had shrines all along the way down to the water table. They had uh, uh, rudimentary uh, sewage systems and so on. So these folks were uh, part of their worldview, very, very interested in water and water management as part of both their philosophy and religion, but also in terms of practical engineering. Now, the Spanish came in with uh, the conquests with Cortez and then uh, Oñate and the others, Coronado came up into New Mexico and uh, eventually conquered uh, the Puebloan people along the Rio Grande and started their own uh, colonies like at Santa Fe and so on. And uh, the Spaniards brought in this idea of acequias that you mentioned. And, and the word acequia comes from the North Africa, from the Moors. And that is a word that means water conveyance in Arabic. And uh, as um, many of our listeners may uh, know from their history lessons, is that the Moors were in Spain for hundreds of years uh, and brought a lot of their culture there. Well, part of that culture was their irrigation um, technologies that the Spaniards learned about. And then when they had the conquest uh, of the uh, indigenous America, the Spaniards came over and brought those technologies. Now, when they went into New Mexico, they started to hybridize between indigenous Puebloan technologies and Spanish ideas. And so they started to uh, uh, sort of converge in many ways as to the kind of water management they had. So today in New Mexico, you have these really rich cultural systems uh, around the acequias. And that's a really a nice way of saying irrigation ditch, but it's uh, you know very Hispanic and uh, very historical. Um, when the Euro-Americans came through the, tra the Taos Trappers and then uh, General Kearney with the Mexican War, they came into New Mexico and saw the irrigation from the uh, indigenous people and the Spaniards and realized that they could replicate that in other areas. Uh, when um, Carney came through in particular, he had a, uh, a group of Mormon uh, infantrymen with him, the Mormon battalion, and they learned how to irrigate from uh, the Indians in um, Arizona. And so when Brigham Young started to settle the um, uh, Salt Lake City area, those folks had seen how irrigation was uh, conducted on uh, indigenous lands and then started to do that to help build the Mormon settlements. And so we really have a debt of gratitude to the indigenous people and to the Hispanics for sort of blazing the way in terms of technology and water management systems that we've developed uh, in uh, Colorado and other Western states. The history that you're just starting to embark on is a really fascinating part of the book, but there's so many other pieces. Um, like you mentioned a few names, historical figures, and there are a lot of those, some of the more commonly known names perhaps are 
Mulholland. So everybody that's driven on Mulholland Drive should know who that particular figure was in California water. And of course, um, John Wesley Powell, and there's a section devoted to some of his water related work. But then there's also um, a lot of interesting pieces on the wildlife that are dependent on Western water. And also, of course, the dams. So maybe we could talk about dams a little bit. And is there one particularly egregious story that, I mean, you, you, you start the book with a story of a dam. And so that might yeah. be a good place to start. The Dolores River, which is near and dear to my heart, uh, one of the beautiful places in Southwest Colorado, uh, McPhee Dam was constructed uh, really as a piece of pork barrel in uh, the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And um, for the amount of money the federal government had poured into that project, very little beneficial use has come out of it. Now, folks down in Cortez or Talwak might disagree with that. But in terms of dollars per dollar that has been generated, uh, the amount of federal money that has gone into that versus the amount of benefits to those communities, in, in many ways, the amount of dollars that have gone in far outweighs the benefits that's been generated. Now there are winners in that, um, in that, in that there are you know bean growers and uh, some of the indigenous communities that are receiving water, but they've uh, drowned uh, many uh, ruins. Uh, they basically dried up the Dolores River. Uh, they eliminated for all intents and purposes a recreational flow. So that's one one that's been uh, pretty bad. Uh, there are other other examples. The real famous one is the Echo Park controversy, uh, where um, Floyd Dominey and the Bureau of Reclamation tried to get a dam built at uh, the heart of Dinosaur National Monument. And David Brower, the famous conservationist, uh, battled that. He put uh, ads in the New York Times and the LA Times saying, would you flood the Sistine Chapel just to get closer to the ceiling? And um, battled the uh, dam builders. And eventually they came to an agreement not to build a dam in Dinosaur, but uh, traded that off to allow Glen Canyon and Flaming Gorge to get constructed. And so Flaming Gorge and Glen Canyon were built. And I think a lot of the conservationists today would rue that, uh, that agreement. Um, there, you know, the, the whole thing between Dominey and um, uh, David Brower, they had a, a lot of animosity um, between them. One time I heard um, Dominey speak in Denver and he called uh, David Brower a sanctimonious ass. And um, then he says, I've always regretted calling him sanctimonious. Uh, <laughs> and so so you, you could see the sense. And, and then Brower, for his part, said that he wished that uh, Dominey had been made to break down uh, Glen Canyon Dam as punishment. Uh, so these guys to, went to their graves really despising each other and were probably both more famous uh, because they had met each other and battled each other in the end. But they were, you know, mid, mid 20th century icons of Western water that kind of show the difference between, you know, the environmental values that we hold dear and the development that values that also built much of the West. So it's a, it's a very rich history. And that acrimony 
persist to this day. I mean, there's such strong feelings about water and development versus recreation in the West. And for listeners, and I'm, I'm guessing, or I don't think I even have to guess, that many of our listeners are really interested in this topic. I think your book is a, a great place to start. So we got to leave it there. We're out of time already. Thank well, you so much for talking today. It's a really fascinating topic, Bob. Beth, it's always wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for having me. That was author and water resource administrator Robert Crofasi speaking with me about his new book, Western Water A to Z, The History, Nature, and Culture of a Vanishing Resource. This book is the first ever field guide to Western water. Organized as a collection of terms, the book addresses the most salient water issues and provides helpful background information regarding their origins and implications. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer this quarter, and I produce this week's show. Shelley Schlender supplied the headline. The show was engineered by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Claude Debussy. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material reference in the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. KGNU is fueled by creative and dedicated people, keeping our airwaves alive and thriving. If you're interested in science, you could be part of the How on Earth team. The first step is to attend a volunteer orientation held the first Thursday of odd-numbered months. To find out more about volunteer opportunities, visit kgnu.org.